Hey Slavic Connection listeners, I'm very excited to say that Michelle and I are back in the studio, or rather back on campus for this episode. This is the first time we've recorded in the same room since spring of 2020, so this is quite the welcome change of scenery as I get to see Michelle's face dim in exasperation in person now, rather than on Zoom. Our guest for this episode was Jose Vergara. He's an assistant professor of Russian at Bryn Mawr College, as well as a published author. His book, All Future Plunges to the Past, James Joyce in Russian Literature, came out in October of this year. We got to chat about his ongoing research on prison tax, the Russian lit courses he teaches, and the general question of how we connect the past to the present through books. Or as James Joyce wrote in Ulysses, hold to the now, the here, through which all future plunges to the past. Take a listen. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Let's chat a little bit about you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what set you on the path of Russian language and literature? Sure. It was actually in Texas. I, uh, after (laughs) moving to outside Houston, when I was about six with my mom, um, I grew up just outside Houston. And in high school, I read Crime and Punishment for for class, like so many other people in, in our field. Fell in love with Dostoevsky and his bizarre characters and these philosophical ideas he's playing with. And then I also read Lolita on my own. I was equally floored in many uh, different ways there, but in particular with Nabokov's language. And I had this kind of passing interest in vague interest, I guess, in, in Russian and Russian culture, always kind of on, on the back of my mind. But then I went off to college and thought I would study journalism and kind of follow in my grandfather's footsteps and be a journalist of some kind, but ended up hating it, at least the study of it and not enjoying <laughs> my, my time in these big, big classes and wanted something more, uh, something smaller and kind of a, a more immediate community with people reading Russian literature and studying Russian or at least that's what I realized soon after that I, I wanted. And looking through the course catalog uh, for the spring semester, I saw a course on Dostoevsky and, and Tolstoy, and it sounded really great. So I uh, took that, and then from there, just kind of dove in and, and dug deeper and deeper and picked up the language in my sophomore year and never really looked back. So it was kind of by chance and kind of this interest that was always there, but had never really had the opportunity to pursue before college. So you've definitely listed off a lot of really great, I guess, like gateway books into Russian literature, into Russian culture. How did you take your experiences then and translate them into teaching? Because now you're an assistant professor at Bryn Mawr College of of Russian Literature, Russian Language, and so many of your classes are so fascinating. It's not really the cut and dry, you know, Russian 100, Russian 200. You touch on so many different subjects like prison literature, Chernobyl, the Russian novel. You have a wide variety of teaching styles too. You have students putting on performances using VR headsets. So what has that been like? What kind of motivates you with, with your teaching style? I, th- I think the main thing right now anyway is just experimenting and trying different things like VR, like these digital projects that I've been doing more and more. And then as, as far as topics go, I, th- I think it's the similar principle there, to trying to experiment and following both what students tell me that tell me they're interested in and then other topics that I'm just really curious about. Like the Chernobyl course, for instance, I, I've become fascinated with Chernobyl 
before the HBO series, I always uh, note uh, that came OG, after. OG, OG interest. And, you know, I was uh, supported by, by really great colleagues, developed that class at Swarthmore, Sybil and Forrester, and, and other faculty colleagues in the environmental studies program there were all for it and just trying this kind of niche topic or what seems like very niche, but in fact is really broad and expansive and can cover so many genres and countries and media of different kinds. And then I, I sort of see the, the syllabi create as curation of, of a kind, right? That I'm putting together a narrative or some kind of collection of materials that I share with students and explore with them and you know learn so much from them as well. So yeah, I think it's, for me, teaching is a lot about ex experimenting and trying as many new things as possible without overwhelming myself <laughs> and going crazy. I think it was just fascinating for me to look at your CV and see sort of the methods that you've been utilizing, because it would be so easy to take something like Dostoevsky and teach it in the very dry manner of reading the book and talking about the chapters. But that doesn't really motivate students. So you can I can almost see how you've taken your your passions for these books that got you started and how you've been trying to translate it for, you know, the younger generations, the Gen Zers and getting them interested in the same way you were. Yeah, I think so. Another big component is really having amazing professors myself and having these wonderful models of instructors who kind of made the text meaningful personally and showed connections between what's happening in the literature in our own lives. And yeah, just having it come alive instead of it being really dry and boring and only formal or formalistic. You know, what, as I was saying, what brought me into the, the Russian world is really these big ideas in Dostoevsky and and seeing how he frames the world and these questions and what we can learn from them. And I love having those conversations with my students and picking up and following the, the bits that intrigue them and digging in with them, however, however it makes sense and however it generates really productive discussions. I actually wanted to follow up on that. How, how has the response been from your students? Because they are they are younger. I mean, I, I'm, I've aged out of that age range, so I can't imagine what their responses have been, especially I was interested that you teach a class on Lolita or have taught a class on Lolita. How has that been like, especially kind of in a changing environment where there is more sensitivity to certain issues that Lolita evokes? Yeah. So a clarification in two Responsive to that. So the, the class in which I taught Lolita was actually my prison literature class. So not just Lolita. That, I guess, is another good example of an experiment, right? Lolita doesn't take place in a prison. Maybe it was written by Humbert Humbert in confinement in, while he's incarcerated. But you don't see a prison like you do in many of the other things, other texts we read in that course. But, you know, it's not a surprise. The, the text is very much about confinement and a loss of freedom on Dolores Hayes' part at the hands of Humbert Humbert. So I thought it would be a nice, I don't know, <laughs> a, uh, a challenging and different view of incarceration amidst Dostoevsky's Notes from a Dead House and uh, Akhmatova's Requiem and all these other texts that deal with prisons in, in more explicit and literal ways, I guess. As far as the student response goes, I th yes, I think, you know, in, in the midst of, in the wake of uh, me too, and you know, so many of these discussions. Reading Lolita now probably feels different than it would 20 years ago or even more recently. And I had certainly at least a handful of students who were understandably kind of put off and not wanting to, to engage with a novel, given the, the subject matter and how difficult it could be to read. And 
I think even for myself, every time I read it, it gets harder and harder as I get older, since I've had kids, as I just kind of grapple with what Nabokov was doing more and more. I see it in different ways. At the same time, I had students who, like me, were really floored by Nabokov's language and complexities of the novel and the structure and the kind of literary aspects of it. Um, And we had really great discussions there. And one of my, I mean, talking about experiments and and different approaches, one one thing that I did in there was have students take a look at uh, erasure poems where, you know, you, you take a bit of text and black out lines and leave only certain words and create a poem out of that. Um, And this poet had done that with a lot of the statements and quote-unquote apologies that abusers or people charged or accused of things during Me Too had put out and created poems that sort of cut to the core and cut to what they were actually saying or not saying in these apologies that were problematic occasionally. So we looked at one that this artist did with Louis C.K.'s apology letter and had the students consider how both in that apology and in Humbert Humbert's narrative in the the book Lolita, you have to really look between the lines and dig deeper and ignore the and not fall for some of the tricks that they're engaging with or deploying to, to really see what's happening, see the reality and see the pain that Dolores, for instance, is feeling in the novel there. So that's kind of some of my experience with teaching Lolita in the, in the book of. I haven't taught it the, the last couple times when I've taught this prison literature class just because I've incorporated other things, but I'm not opposed necessarily to, to returning to it. And I am co-editing a volume now on, on as you mentioned, Generation Z and teaching Nabokov to Generation Z. I think the fact that you're taking something that's considered classical literature now and connecting it to contemporary modern events is is a fantastic way of approaching something like this because the the older a book gets, the more almost it feels like we're disconnected from the subject matter at times. And and to find these outlets that connect it to something that is more relatable kind of definitely brings more meaning to the book of saying, oh, you know, you, you think you can't relate to something like this, but when you compare it to what happened the other week, that suddenly it brings the subject matter together a lot more and brings so much more understanding into the classroom. So that I find that fascinating. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to hear that. And I, I think my students appreciate it too, or, or students in general. Yesterday, the day before, I've, I've lost track of time here. Um, when, when I was wrapping up the most recent iteration of this prison literature class, at the end, I had students share one thing that they're taking away from the class, something big or something small, just something that they will remember, hopefully will remember about it. And one that really struck me was a student who's very much involved in uh, prison abolition movements and and organizations and was very aware of these issues, shared that she hadn't really considered it a global issue, that she was very much focused on uh, the American prison system, the U.S. prison system, that is, and the many, many issues (laughs) there. But reading all these accounts from Dostoevsky to Akhmatova to more recent things like Oleg Navalny's memoir, excerpts from it, and so many others, kind of reframed it for her. And I, th- I think this is what you're talking about and is really one of my aims in teaching to show the relevance and the importance and the, the power of this literature. So for her, it you know, revealed the kind of global struggle of prison reform and particularly prison 
abolition. And that really, I don't know, for me, personally speaking, I think that's uh, an important goal. Both the abolition thing, but the, the connecting the, the material to issues that are important and personal to, the, to these students. On that topic, I actually wanted to touch on your work recently in Russian prison texts. It's, it's a new research project for you. Uh, how did this interest come about? Uh, very much out of my experience teaching this literature and teaching in general. So one thing was I came up with this course a few years ago on the, the full tradition of Russian prison writing. So going from the archpriest of Akum all the way to the present day with, again, Navalny, Hadrkovsky, Pussy Riot's memoirs, and looking at everything in between. But more and more in my research, I find myself, I don't know, engaged in and fascinated by what's going on today or in the last few decades at least. So in this research project I'm developing now, I'm looking at the last 30 years of prison writing and both memoirs and autobiographies written by people who authors who have spent time in prison or people who became authors because they spent time in prison and wrote about the experience, but also other texts that take a historical perspective and are writing about Soviet gulag camps using historical research and documents and kind of seeing how that what that says about the the modern contemporary perspective on prisons and this awful history in the Soviet period. So that was one thing. And then the other, in grad school, uh, I, I taught at a prison for five years. And then more recently, when I was at Swarthmore, I did a, a Inside Out class, which is a, now an inter- international program, but you mix, quote unquote, traditional college students with inside students at a prison basically just hold a class and a normal class, but it happens to be in a prison. And both of these experiences were completely transformative for me and, you know, revealed so much to me about the prison system in in the United States. And then also with my teaching and thinking about how I want to teach, what kind of teacher I want to be, how I want to approach these materials, these texts, kind of along the lines of what we were saying before. So I would say this research project completely, basically, um, is derived from from my teaching and the inspiration that that I, I don't know received from those two experiences. So there's there's a lot of clearly personal connections for you in this research project, as well as a lot of history to unpack too. If you consider, as you mentioned, the history of Soviet gulags, as well as you know the history of incarceration here in the United States as well. Sort of in a nutshell, what are some of the findings that you've been kind of unearthing as, as you've been researching this, delving into different texts from from Pussy Riot, connecting to Solzhenitsyn, maybe? What what are some of the, the end results that you've been uh, uncovering? Yeah, it's 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 still early because uh, my, my my first book just came out in October, so it's still uh, in the early stages. But one thing that that particularly fascinates me is how these authors think of themselves as being part of this tradition of Solzhenitsyn, Dostoevsky, and on and on and on, or not how they set themselves apart um, and how they do so. Uh, so, for instance, Hadarkovsky and Navalny, not Alexei, but Alieg, the the brother who first went to to prison what kind of references they make to this tradition to past writers like, again, Solzhenitsyn or Chekhov or Tavlatov, etc. These writers from the past who, who spent time in prisons or like Tavlatov worked at a prison or Soviet camp. And how, yeah, how they see themselves as being able to say something new about the experience or not, whether what they're doing is sort of championing Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn humanistic claim that through these prisons, you can kind of better yourself. It's a transformative experience. Or whether they're claiming that it's all negative and, you know, nothing's going to change. It's all just 
always going to be this awful prison space and prison state or something else. And, you know, what, what kind of new paths they find themselves, uh, find for themselves and for their, their art or at least their writing. Um, you know, so, uh, that's the tricky thing too here that some of these writers aren't actually writers. They're not professional writers in, in any sense. They just wrote because to some extent that's what one does when you go to prison, right? You can document your experience and share it with others and maybe try to initiate some change, um, inspire some change, but it's not an artistic text, artistic text in the same way other works are. You mentioned that there's this almost awareness as they write that it's not something that's being written in a vacuum. They're aware of those that have come before them and that they're almost adding to this this library of, of texts that were written in prison or after prison. There's there's this does it influence their work in any way or is that something that you're kind of exploring right now? Yes, yes in both, I, I suppose so, yeah. And you know, it's again having just taught the the full tradition every time I just see it more and more clearly, I guess, um, and how much it picks up the further along you go. Um, but it's always there to some extent. You know, Dostoevsky, uh, his notes from a dead house, and then Avakum's um, life of of himself, kind of the touchstones, and they were both not written at the same time, but published at the same time in uh, the early 1860s. And you see references to them as you move forward. You see kind of different thread and different chains throughout the whole tradition. So for instance, Viera Fiegner, the revolutionist who spent many years imprisoned uh, for, for her revolutionary terrorist acts and her tap code. So they would tap on the walls to communicate between cells and not be quite so isolated. That idea is picked up later in Evgenia Ginsburg's memoir about her time incarcerated. So th- there's something I don't know, some kind of odd hope and, and positive thing uh, that comes out of this, that these writers recognize that others have gone through this experience and take these lessons. And, and you know, in some cases, tapping on the walls, it's, it's a very concrete, physical lesson that they take on. And in others, it's more literary or metaphoric, right? And in, in learning how you write and document this experience and share and kind of preserve your identity and pres- preserve your selfhood through writing and through telling your story. Um, and I do think some of that is, is kind of carrying forward into the most recent period as well. To kind of pivot a little bit, you mentioned before your book, All Future Plunges to the Past, uh, where you look into the influence of James Joyce in Russian literature. So James Joyce, author of Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake, why James Joyce and why Russian literature? What kind of sparked finding that thread that connects this Irish writer to Russian writers and Russian literature? So I'll I'll give you the slightly long version. I'll try to trim it down. But we love the long version. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it goes back to that same year in high school where I read Dostoevsky and and the book of I picked up Ulysses and really struggled with it. I think that that was a less successful endeavor. I read the first three episodes and then got to the fourth and I think at that point gave up. I don't know, maybe I was busy with other things too. I'll give myself some slack, cut myself some slack here. It was high school. (laughs) Yeah. But again, it was something that was just there in the back of my mind, Ulysses and and Joyce and this, you know, great writer. Then in, in, in college, I first put the two together with some help, uh, with a professor in an independent study where we read uh, Ulysses, and I managed it at that time, alongside Andrei Bieli's Petersburg, 
which were which was also this, this early 20th century novel that is often compared to Ulysses, kind of play with language, the fact that it takes place in a city, there's a limited time frame, but apparently Bialy and, and Joyce never read each other, but it's often compared. So anyway, I, I read those two works and then I think something else by Bailey and then a novel by the other really wonderful Irish writer, Flann O'Brien, I can't recommend highly enough. So looking at this, this moment in modernism um, in this independent study with Tim Lang and a wonderful, wonderful person and professor. And then in grad school, I did a comparative modernism's PhD minor and took a course in the English department on Joyce and Beckett. And there, when I was rereading Ulysses, I noticed uh, or these certain bits of Ulysses called to mind the novel Envy by Yuri Eliesha. And I thought this was kind of curious. And as I started looking into it, I realized that there wasn't anything on this topic written, or very little, I guess. Maybe some passing comparisons. And then the one the big thing was Neil Cornwell's book, Joyce, James Joyce and the Russians. But there uh, he, he examined and chronicled, laid out the critical reception of Joyce in the Soviet Union primarily, but also in the emigre communities. Yeah, and you know, this was a moment where I was picking a dissertation topic, and uh, or I had to, <laughs> and it just seemed like the perfect topic for me because I was always interested in comparative literature to some extent, and had this uh, desire to to know and understand Joyce better. So it seemed like a good opportunity to do that as well, and the fact that I could kind of break new ground and write a, a broader and more systematic or synthetic study of how Joyce has been received across the 20th century into the present day, instead of it just being kind of piecemeal. All of those things excited me and it worked out, came together. <laughs> Ultimately, there was enough material and, you know, led me to some authors that I really love and appreciate and lots of discoveries along the way. Let's get into the book subject matter then. How, how was James Joyce received in the Soviet Union? What, what were the effects of his works being kind of read either, I, I'm assuming illicitly, I, I think he was probably banned in, in the Soviet Union. So how did that come about? Yeah, this, you know, of course, uh, this kind of protracted history, complex history of the Russian reception. He was actually in 1925, the first partial translation of Ulysses appeared in Moscow and Leningrad. So it was a very early translation. It was among the first of the translations of, of Ulysses. But again, it was just a, fragments of chapters, so not, not an entire chapter, an entire episode, and definitely not the entire book. Um, that was the initial kind of introduction to Joyce. And then from there in the late 20s, so the second half of the 20s, in, up to 1937, there were a number of different publications. Almost all of Ulysses was translated and published. Uh, the Dubliners stories were published, Portrait of an Artist. There were a number of translations, those accessible to the early Soviet readership, you know, almost from the start. But as, as you said, right, things clamped down 1933, 34, definitely by 1937. There was an attack on Joyce and Joyce, along with John Dos Passos, was singled out as a representative of this decadent West of the Western modernism that was totally antithetical to what eventually um, was formalized as socialist realism and Soviet values. So from that point through the 50s, essentially, and into the, the 60s, 
there's very little written about Joyce and you couldn't access him quite quite as easily as you would in, in the late 20s and early 30s. And then, yeah, in, in the 70s and 80s, of course, as things started opening up, new translations and republications became possible. Ulysses was translated successfully and published uh, in the late 80s and then in, serialized in, in book form in the early 90s. So in, in the book with the authors that I examine, I have five primary case studies kind of situated within these different contexts. It's really, as, as I try to emphasize, it's not a single Joyce that's being read. It's a Joyce that's very much dependent on a, a version of Joyce that's dependent on when these Russian writers were encountering him, whether in the early Soviet era or in immigration like Nabokov, who could read him in English. He, he both had the, the capacity, the, the knowledge of English and had access to, to get the book abroad. Or, right, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or in the post-Soviet era, what Joyce means to each of these writers depends on their context and alongside who else is able to be published at, at any given moment. Because for some of them, you know, if they encountered him later in the early 90s, say, some of the, the, the devices and the tricks and the techniques that he developed were perfected or, you know, expanded in some way, they would have already seen through someone else. So there's a kind of lag and uh, belatedness to, to his reception in some cases. You do kind of, in the book, you go through all of these five authors and illustrate how they draw from Joyce's text, and you call them Joycean subtexts. What, what are some of these Joycean subtexts that, that started popping up in, in works from Yuri Alosha, Nabokov, Sokolov, um, Mikhail Shishkin? Yeah, it's, it's a number of things. The, the main one, the main through line is kind of father-son conflict in particular and this idea of a lineage that's both biological and literary. So in Ulysses, to kind of get into the weeds here, in episode nine of Ulysses, Joyce has his character, his protagonist, his hero, one of them, Stephen Dedalus, lay out his what's called a Shakespeare theory. So he suggests that an artist, a creative writer, a genius, can inscribe himself into literary history, into the world history by creating lasting art. So if you write a really great play like Hamlet or a really great novel like Ulysses, um, you kind of become a father to yourself uh, because the world now understands you in the way that you crafted your, your mythology and your identity as a writer and you have this thing that will live on after you. So it's kind of metaphysical and kind of very much literary and literal and <laughs> producing a book to all of these things. And all of the writers that I look at, the, the five primary ones and then others to some extent, but definitely those five are obsessed and fascinated with this question of literary paternity and, and identity. Uh, Liesha, for instance, in the 20s, um, in writing Envy, you know, he was very much fascinated by and kind of pulled into the new Soviet mindset and new Soviet man and new Soviet person and um, what that could be and what that could mean. But at the same time, he loved Western art, loved kind of individualist art that presented the world from these skewed perspectives. And the book, I, I, his novel Envy, I suggest, uh, is a kind of wrestling with this Joycean theme, this Joycean subtext of becoming a father to yourself, staking out you're claiming your own path and moving in that direction. Um, and for him, this was impossible given where the politics were headed, where the you know, society and culture was headed. And then all of the authors respond in different ways based on their context. For Nabokov, just to give one more example, um, who lost his father 
uh, in a botched assassination attempt, lost his country when he had to go into immigration following the, the 1917 revolution. The thought of becoming your own father and kind of cutting yourself off from your actual father, figuratively speaking, was really antithetical to his worldview. He wanted those connections. He wanted to recover what was lost, both father and his fatherland. So I propose that his his final Russian novel, Dar, the Gift, is um, is actually a kind of mistranslation of Ulysses in that he uses the same Shakespeare theory in a way, but for opposite ends, that he tries to merge the biological with the literary, he tries to bring together and recover these connections. So that's the kind of broad picture, the main thread that they're all interested in. And then from there, you know, there's a number of different things like a footstep motif that's common in, in all of them. Uh, and Volkov plays with this dog imagery that also appears in the beginning of Ulysses. Other body parts like Mole and Shishkin, I highlight and this this idea of i don't know your your identity being linked to your body is something that joyce also plays with different images different situation rhymes so a kind fatherly figure taking in a young struggling poet we see that recur in envy in in a certain way kind of circus mirror view there are all these various connections that i picked up on as i was reading these novels and situating them within the, the joyce and ulyssian context I mean, that's fascinating that you had so much to work with, especially when you really divide them between these five separate case studies that all sort of have their own individual literature, their own individual voices. I'm curious to know what the research process was like. On your website, you mentioned it took you about seven years to to complete this project. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> the, the line I keep using that at the Joyce's postscript to Ulysses uh, includes 1914 to 1921 in this book, my book, I wrote from 2014 to 2021. So it's this lovely coincidence, I guess. Yeah, so as I mentioned, it started as a dissertation project, as a dissertation. And there I only had the four authors, the four the first ones, Aliyash and the book of Sakhalov uh, and Bitov is the third one. And then, yeah, af- after the PhD, um, it was a matter of a few more years <laughs> of, of piecing things together and reworking it and expanding, cutting what wasn't necessary, kind of the usual when you turn a dissertation to a book, but also trying to reframe it and um, I think one thing that really changed, or two things, was um, thinking contextually uh, and historically that developed more in the book form, um, situating these writers within their context and how that uh, affected their readings of choice and their representations of choice within their works, as I was saying before. And then the other was seeing and, and formulating for for the book for potential readers how this shifting uh, reception of Joyce isn't just about Joyce, but it's also about intertextuality and how each of these moments in time represents a different different form, different version of, uh, different understanding of uh, intertextuality and how we, how writers relate to their forebears and how they inscribe bits of previous works into their novels in this case. So that was a big change. And other, uh, I guess, big changes are moving on later. I completed these interviews either through correspondence, through email or through Facebook, other means, or Skype interviews. This was again before Zoom kicked off. These interviews with other contemporary writers, living writers, of course, who had read Joyce at different moments. And I was curious how they came to him, why they read him, why they continued to read him, etc. Incorporated all of this into a kind of mini oral history into the conclusion of the book. 
it was really important to me to, to bring it up to the present day, partly to show how a lot of the, the same debates that were going on in the 20s, 30s, you know, intervening years regarding Joyce and his art are still happening today. I really enjoy this sort of uh, through line that we're having through our conversation, which is that connection of the past to to the present and, and finding those similar threads, the exact same thing that they were talking about 80 years ago is still being talked about today. It's this discussion keeps going even as the context and the environment changes around us. Yeah, yeah. Or, or I'm just uh, stuck <laughs> on this idea, yeah. Well, it sounds like it was truly a work of, of, of love and passion. So congratulations on getting it published this year. That's incredibly exciting. I guess I just, you know, the only thing left is really as we're looking into our winter break coming up, uh, what are you looking at in the spring? What classes are you teaching? So I'll be continuing to teach second year. I teach a language class and then literature classes, um, literature and translation so my other class will be focused on ecological displacement in Russophone literature. So looking at how writers conceive of and represent changing environments um, that they're living in, kind of different moments of ecological crisis or disaster. So I'll include Alexeyevich's Voices from Chernobyl here, but also other works like Agmatov's uh, The Day Lasts More Than 100 Years, some more recent poetry by Galina Rimbu, a few other things. Uh, I, I mean, to return to our, our favorite theme here, uh, sort of looking at how, of course, in this moment of climate change, climate disaster, or we want to frame it, there are other moments that we can learn from in the past where writers, people in Russian-speaking places have, have dealt with these things or, or, you know, similar things and how they made sense of them through their art. It sounds like a fascinating course. I actually read Alexeyevich's Voices from Chernobyl this past semester, and a powerful book, like truly underlined the magnitude of how much oral history can really get the meaning across as opposed to something that's just something more historical and matter of fact. Those That collection of interviews was, I think, the best way to kind of gain that understanding from a per- people perspective of what Chernobyl was and how it affected Ukraine and the surrounding countries that got the radiation swept out to them. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's brutal. And uh, I'll, I'll note here, too, that I, I totally stole her, her model for, for this conclusion of my book where I put the different voices together. She was definitely the the inspiration there because, you know, I interviewed everyone separately, but then, I don't know, dramatic form, it's play form where I have the the author's name and then some quotations and I flip back and forth between them. I was looking for these connections and what they were saying or or tensions if there was disagreement. And she was absolutely the model for this, this structure, I guess, in the conclusion. Well, thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. We really appreciated you having on, and hopefully we'll have you come back a little bit later to discuss a little bit more in-depth your research into prison texts as well. I would love to. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. 
The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces.